Hi everyone, welcome back to Hitchcock University where you learn filmmaking from the masters. Okay, uh, so last class session we talked about Gains of New York and this class session we're gonna talk about another Leonardo DiCaprio score, uh, uh, Marty collaboration. Uh, this one's The Aviator. Uh, for those of you who don't know, The Aviator is a story about a real life innovator, entrepreneur, filmmaker, womanizer, um, sufferer of mental illness by the name of Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes was uh, was one of the biggest innovators in aviation, hence the title, The Aviator. He was um, a an ambitious filmmaker, to say the least. He had many very famous romances, and he suffered from OCD and possibly some other things. I'm not entirely sure on that. I'm looking at this story from the filmmaking perspective, not the uh, reality or, or not through the comparing it to what was true or not. I don't, I haven't done all my fact checking on the actual Howard Hughes. I'm just looking at the film itself. Um, so this is a story that takes place in the 20s, 30s and 40s. And Marty, being the filmmaker that he is, felt that something in the filmmaking should reflect that era, specifically the cinema of that era, because that's how Marty relates to the world. And I can kind of understand that. I, you know, we've we've seen Marty do this in the past with films like New York, New York. You know, we talked about how he would intentionally try to frame frame the actors in similar fashions as you would in the 40s from the knees up in the American shot or or how they did the makeup and the costumes and sort of took the typical 40s cinematic look and exaggerated it a little bit, or um, or how he originally wanted to shoot it in the old Academy ratio, the 1.33 to 1, the old 4 by 3 ratio, and, you know, those kinds of things. So Marty didn't take take it quite as far this time, but what he did do was something a little bit, uh, well, in some cases more subtle, in some cases not. And he tried to represent the color of the era that was represented in cinema. So color didn't really become a common cinematic technique until the 60s. But it was around from much, much earlier days of filmmaking, dating all the way back to the 20s, when Technicolor came out with what was called the two-strip process. And what they had was they had two strips of, of film that would run through the camera, one that was red-sensitive, and one that was blue sensitive, and those two strips would be combined to create color. It's not the most accurate color in the in the world, but it it did create pretty good color. And that was used in the 20s and into the 30s, and then by somewhere in the 30s, Technicolor released the three-strip color method, which added green. So that you had red, blue, and green, and that created a much more vibrant color, a color that we think of when we think of Technicolor. Um, you, you know, think The Wizard of Oz. That's three-strip Technicolor, I'm pretty sure. So Marty decided that what he would do is try to replicate the color scheme of two-strip and three-strip depending on what era we were in. So as the story goes along, you go from two-strip to three-strip color. So in order to do this, Marty showed his production designer, Dante Freddy. He showed Robert Richardson, his DP. He showed uh, his costume designers, makeup artists, everybody, two-strip and three strip films so that he could get across okay this is the look we're going for these are the colors that need to appear on screen you know and then and then figured out with the lab how to process the film a certain way to get closer to that look and then finish that look 
um, in the digital intermediate, in the DI, uh, through digital color correction, where again, he would show his, his digital coloring crew, you know, certain colors that he was going for. This required a lot of tests. This required um, a lot of forethought on everybody's behalf to figure out how to easy, how to most simply and effectively represent the colors that Marty was looking for on the screen. So for example, there's a scene where Kate Blanchett playing Catherine Hepburn uh, comes into the coconut grove with a, uh, you know, a very nice dress. In reality, that dress was, Marty describes it as a mustardy green, and it comes out as a beige because they're in the two-strip color process and there's no green sensitive. There's only red and blue. So if you, so if you're doing it right, none of that green should show up on camera and it didn't because it was a very yellowy green and blue and red are, are don't are 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 on the opposite end of the color spectrum so it just picks up something else picks up whatever else was in there so the interesting thing about this is it could become very distracting because there were some scenes that they very intentionally selected and intentionally feature that the color just seems off. It seems like you need to go through the menu on your television or if you have, if you had an old CRT TV, you have to, you know, turn the knobs to, to calibrate your television. In fact, I, I think I remember as a, as a, as a teenager watching this movie and thinking that color's not right. What's wrong with my television? Because there's, there's two scenes in particular that stand out. There's one where Howard Hughes and, and Catherine Hepburn are on a golf course. And golf courses are supposed to be green. But this golf course isn't green. It's like a bluish, almost a turquoise, but not quite. I'm not even sure what color to call it, but it's it's mostly blue. It's not as blue as the Boise State uh, University football stadium, if you've ever seen that. Um, but it's pretty blue. It's not really green. It's missing something to make it green. And then there's another scene where Howard Hughes crashes a plane in a beet field. And all the tops of the beet pl uh, plants, they're not green either like they're supposed to be. Well, the thing is, this is what Marty said when he was asked by Robert Sheckel. Robert? Richard. When he was asked by Richard Schickel in the book Conversations with Scorsese. This is what he said when, when Schickel asked him, why, why did you do this two-strip color thing. And he said, part of it is the enjoyment of doing something special and creating a look, a certain look. I just felt it was real important with Aviator. I mean, certainly another person doing the Aviator or a Howard Hughes could shoot it straight. It would be fine. It's just a different vision of it. But I thought Howard Hughes had a great love for movies. He was there at the time when movies were making the transition to sound and color. I thought it would be nice to make a little history of the movies, to show the texture of the color changing as the film went on. It kind of fits the subject matter. Now, that's Marty's perspective. You may agree with it or disagree with it. You may find the color choices to be very confusing and distracting. You may not. I don't know. The fact of the matter is, that's what Marty decided he was going to do. That's what he wanted to do. That's what he felt fit the story. That was his vision. And I, I want to get our definition straight on vision. I think a lot of people use the term vision to mean the movie they see in their head. The way I have come to understand the term vision is it's your understanding of the story. It's how you see the story. It's how you see 
this moment is very important to this character because it, you know, because of X, Y, and Z, or this moment is, 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 is of, of utmost importance because of whatever reasons or this, or in Marty's case here, this story takes place in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s and is about a filmmaker. The second scene of the script is of Howard Hughes making a movie. So if we're going to tell a story about a filmmaker, we should try to tell it in a way that represents the films of the era. I can understand where he's coming from, especially being a big cinephile as he is. Now, there's there's another interesting part here in the book, Conversations with Scorsese, where he says this. He says, we were getting the last shot and there was something going wrong. They had begun to shoot before I had seen the setup. I said, stop, this has to stop, I said. This is not worthy of Howard Hughes. I found myself jumping up and down on the tarmac with the whole crew surrounding me in a semicircle. They were saying, what is he talking about? And I'm yelling, we're not, we're not doing that shot. Get it out of there. I had designed the shot according to the structure of what John Logan had wrote in the script. It was the shot of Leo getting into the, XF, the XF-11 cockpit before he takes off for the test flight that ends in the Beverly Hills crash. I wanted to boom down, but they had just shot him getting into the plane. I said, no, it has to be a boom down when he gets into the cockpit. Then someone that we, then someone said that we were going to have to do the shot again anyway against the green screen. But I had a feeling, the kind of feeling that builds up in your mind like paranoia. We were all working together. We were not enemies. But you never know what a studio is going to do. Let's say we go, God forbid, three weeks over schedule, four weeks over schedule. At a certain point in order to satisfy the schedule, I might start to feel, you know what? I think we'll use that shot we did by accident on the set. And we'll forget the boom down. But I didn't want to sacrifice that shot. I felt it would have been one of the worst things you could do, making aviation scenes not on the highest level. Basically, I was saying, let's not sacrifice that shot. Let's not compromise here, because in desperation to finish, I may sacrifice that idea and use the less interesting shot. Basically, what Marty's saying there is, in that particular moment, Marty felt very strongly about his vision. And he knew exactly what he wanted to see on the screen. And it didn't make sense to him to compromise at that moment. He picked a mountain to die on and fought for it. Now, I work as a tech in this industry. I work as a grip. I'm in grip and lighting. G&E, as some call it. Grip and electric. I've been on set with directors and DPs who really seemed to just want to make my life as difficult as it possibly could be, who seemed to only be making life harder than it needs to be. And I typically don't appreciate that, especially when I know we can do it easier. But I'm not the one with the vision for the project. And I also know that in Marty's case, making a multi-million dollar movie, he has people at the ready who are more than capable of doing this job, have all the resources necessary to do whatever it is he wants of them. And so in that particular case, there's not a lot of excuses. Um, I, I have difficulty when, when a project doesn't have the resources to do what it is they want to do and yet are, are persistent in their efforts at trying to, to accomplish things that they don't have have the means to do. That's where I get frustrated. 
And there is something to be said for being flexible. Um, we've talked at length about how flexible Marty had been in his younger days. There's also something to be said for being a filmmaker who's been doing this for a long time and knows exactly what he wants. So I think what we can learn from The Aviator is there are times you need to stick to your vision and fight it out. But you need to see the whole project and understand what are the hills you need to die on. That's all I have for this class session uh, of Hitchcock University. If you would like to reach out to the podcast, you can email us. Our email address is hitchcockuniversity at gmail.com. Uh, you can also uh, find us on Facebook. There's a page, Hitchcock University, as well as on Twitter, Hitch underscore U, as in university. Um, please uh, leave us a rating, comment, uh, review, something, like, whatever. Uh, wherever it is you listen to the podcast, whether that's on SoundCloud, iTunes, uh, I, or iTunes Podcast, um uh, uh, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, wherever it is you listen. Um, in a couple of weeks, we will talk about The Departed. And two weeks after that, we will cover Shutter Island. And then we will get to Hugo. Um, yeah, but that's all we have for this class session. Thank you so much for listening to Hitchcock University. I've been Taylor Bickle. We'll see you again in two weeks. Thanks. <laughs>